one of the questions that kind of comes out of our passage is, can you repent and get right with God and yet still enjoy the fruits of your sin? Can you in, can you in, repent of a sin but then still gain from it, benefit from it? So Shakespeare actually took up that question in in the play Hamlet. Oh, and I was supposed to announce that the kids could go to junior church after my prayer and forgot. So, yes, please head on off to, to junior church. I always forget that part. Um, so Shakespeare and Hamlet actually kind of hits on that question. And it's it's one of my favorite scenes. It is Claudio's prayer. Now, um, in case you don't know that the... the, the thing for Hamlet, you know, should I, I don't know if this is a spoiler alert, it's only been 400 years, but, um, so Hamlet's father is killed by Hamlet's uncle, in other words, his, he kills his own brother, so Claudio kills his own brother, takes over the kingdom, and also marries, um, his wife, Hamlet's mother, and so the, the whole of the play is Hamlet trying to think about how should he get revenge and what should he do. And at one point, Hamlet is ready to strike down Claudio to take action, but Claudio is praying. And so Hamlet decides not to because he doesn't want to, uh, Claudio to be forgiven and go immediately to heaven. So he waits until Claudio waits till later to, to get his revenge. But Claudio's prayer, he's trying to actually repent. To, to, to get right with God after what he had done, which was murder. And, and, but he, his prayer doesn't, isn't going very well. And he realizes that in his prayer, he had to repent of it. It means he would be repenting of his own kingship and his own marriage. And, and this is what it says in the play. He, he prays, my fault is past, but oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen. May one be pardoned and retain the offense. So that, that's in the handout I gave you, his prayer. But see what he's saying? You know, can, can you be pardoned and yet retain the things that the offense gave you, such as his crown his queen, and all that. That question then comes up in our passage today. Can you repent and, and, and get right with God and yet still enjoy the fruits of your sin? So it was a very long section to cover today. I didn't actually have uh, the Schultz, thank you for, for reading that. They read a long stretch, but there's still more. So it actually, it's all of 1 Kings 21. And you find out at the beginning that Ahab, King Ahab, wants to take the, the vineyard of a man named Naboth. So Ahab is a king of Israel in a time of great prosperity. And he has his main capital in Samaria, but they also have a palace in Jezreel. And they're adding to it, developing it. And from his palace 
in Jezreel, he can see this, this, this vineyard right next to him, and he thinks that would make a great vegetable garden. So he wants to acquire that for himself. He goes to Naboth and makes a deal, or tries to make a deal. He offers, I will give you a different vineyard, or I will give you money. Just sell me that vineyard, because I want it for myself. And Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Right? This land is, was my father's, and my father's father's before him. And, and that's his family inheritance. And he doesn't want to sell it for no amount of money. And Ahab is unhappy. It says he is sullen and vexed because Naboth, the Jezreelite, would not sell him that vineyard. And so he goes around the house moping. And um, his, his, well, first of all, th think about this. Think about all that Ahab has. He is the king. He has more than one household. He has so much stuff. He has everything you think he'd want. But what's he moping about? That one thing that was denied him. Does not that say something about the human heart? Right? We, we can have all kinds of good things in our life. But if there's just, oh, we, if, we get, if we're denied the one little thing, the one thing we want, what are we going to dwell on? Oh, I, I need this to be happy. Have you ever said that? If I just have this, then I'll be happy. How long does that last? Yeah, and then suddenly you want something else that you have to have to be happy. That is the human heart, and it's, it's no better for those who are wealthy, for kings. His wife Jezebel sees that he's moping about and asks him why, and when he tells her, he says, are, are you the king or what? Right? She, she says, what are you doing? Um, do you now govern Israel? You see, Jezebel is not an Israelite. She, she was Phoenician, right? In Israel, the king is under the law of God. In every other nation, the king was the law, right? But in Israel, the king had to answer to God and, and couldn't just do whatever he wanted to do. And so Jezebel is saying, wait, wait a second, aren't, aren't you the king? Kings get what they want to get. And she says, cheer up. I'll take care of this. And so she's going to show him uh, how to be king Phoenician style. And so she, she goes and she uses Ahab's name and even his seal. And she writes letters to the elders of Jezreel. And she colludes with them to in a plan to get rid of Naboth so that Ahab can claim the, the vineyard. And the plan is really simple, that at, at a feast day, that they would seat two worthless men, two scoundrels, next to Naboth, and that the scoundrels would then accuse him. It had to be two witnesses in Israel. You had to have two witnesses. They would both accuse him of cursing God and king. In other words, they would lie. And so the elders would, would set this up. And then when the accusation was made... They would enforce the justice, and so Naboth, it happened, he was taken out, and um, the, the elders of, of Israel, or of Jezreel, feared that they, they couldn't go against what the king said, so they went along with Jezebel's plan, and Naboth was taken outside the city and stoned to death.
What that is called is judicial murder. It's murder using the mechanism of law to, to, to do it. And so not only is it murder and that Naboth is killed, but it actually corrupts the town elders as well. They, they become complicit in the evil thing that was done in this injustice. The king and queen are supposed to be leading the charge for, for justice and righteousness within Israel. But instead, they are corrupting others into the same evil that they've done. Back with Adam and Eve, there's, it talks about how they saw the fruit that they were told not to eat. And it says they saw it was pleasing to the eye. That they saw it and they had to have it. They wanted it. And so instead of following what God had said, they decided to choose for themselves what is good and evil, and they, they ate the fruit. Likewise, here, they saw that the vineyard was pleasing to the eye. They wanted it for themselves, and they chose to do. That, that's what sin is, choosing to do for yourself. Decide for yourself what is good and evil. It's not just kings and queens. This is a very dramatic way. This happens in our lives. This is something we are called to be aware of, that, that our eyes would lead us to doing what is wrong. In James 4, it talks about it. It's speaking to Christians, to people in the church. It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? Your passions. In other words, you want something. He says, you desire something, and you do not have it, so you murder. Now, James is not talking about literal murder, but it says you, you murder by attacking people or, or going against them. It says you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Right? You do not have, so instead of asking God, you fight for it. You take it for yourself. Beware that, that what Ahab and Jezebel do here is something each of us are prone to do. This is a warning James gives to, to Christians. And says, you, you ask and do not receive um, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And it says, if, if you try to be a friend of the world, meaning you try to, to get all the stuff of the world, beware, you will make it, the one who does that makes himself an enemy of God. You'll find yourself on the wrong side of God. Do not let your passions lead you astray. So that's all an intro to our the passage as we read it earlier. And so now we get to where Jezebel, having accomplished the murder of Naboth, goes to her husband and says, Naboth's dead. Vineyard's yours. Go ahead and take it. And so at this point, Ahab does. And here's where we have a question. How much did Ahab know? Right? Did he know what Jezebel did? Does he suspect it? Was he completely complicit in it? Or, or was he like, oh, well, that's convenient. What does Ahab know? That question's kind of part of the story as we go. Nevertheless, whether he knew or not, when he took possession of it, the guilt became his. 
he then benefited from Je Je Jezebel's murder. And so he acquired the guilt along with the property. And so the Lord sends his prophet Elijah to, to issue his word to Ahab. Now what's interesting is we have been, as up until the series, it has only been one single issue, right? We're, we're at sermon, what, number seven in this? Up until now, it's always been about Ahab leading Israel into false worship. This now is a different issue. This is actually about an issue of injustice. When you, when you le read the prophets of Israel, whether it's Elijah or the other later prophets, it always seemed to be one of those two, two issues, either unfaithfulness to the Lord, worshiping other gods, or it was injustice, mistreatment of people, including the poor in the land. Those seem to be the two issues that the prophets would, would constantly be bringing up to the kings or the people of Israel. And so Elijah is sent, he, as the prophet, he could speak God's word to the situation. In Israel, power was separated. The king had, since the secular power, the military power, the judicial power, but the prophet retained the spiritual power, the power of God's message. Um, it, it was, in a sense, divided powers. We kind of have a similar thing in America, which I think is a good thing, that that the the king, or our, for us, the president or Congress, they, they don't have spiritual authority or power. They can they have, they have their power, and then pastors and, and other priests and teachers of, of God's word have a spiritual power. It's separated. Elijah comes with a message for Ahab from God. As a pastor, I was thinking about how this kind of fits me is there is I'm called to speak the word of God and oftentimes that means I'm I'm proclaiming the good news of Jesus and salvation and grace and forgiveness about a God who loves you other times I'm teaching God's word so that you can understand God's wisdom about life but there's another aspect to, to that of pastor and that is the prophetic aspect what we see here I am not just to pick out the nice and comforting passages from the Bible to make you feel better. You know, it's not just my job to give you a nice pep talk each Sunday so that you feel okay enough to get through your week. I am instructed, commanded, to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Sometimes, God's word will challenge and rebuke you and will call you out for your sin and unrighteousness amongst his people. The classic passage, and this is on your handout if you want to look at it as I read it, is 2 Timothy 4. And this is the, the call given to pastors. At every ordination service I've ever been at, this is read to the pastors. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? Speak God's word in season or out of season. Maybe people don't want to hear what you have to say. Preach the word anyways. Maybe it's a special holiday, like Father's Day or Mother's Day. And, you know, people just want to come have this nice, nice little message. Speak the word. Teach what God's word says. 
regardless. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. And then verse 3, this is, this is the challenge for you all. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We live in a consumer culture that says, right, find what you want, make it, make it fit for you, right? And people will, will take that attitude and apply it to churches, and they'll go around and they'll look for pastors or teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, who will affirm them and make them feel good, who will say to them what their itching ears want to hear. Are you willing to be challenged by God's word and to stick it out if God is rebuking you? That's the call upon his people. Thank you for that yes, by the way, I heard that. Ahab is not excited about being rebuked. When he sees Elijah, here's what he says. Have you found me, my enemy? Ahab knows if, if Elijah's here, there's something wrong. He, there, he, he, it could be he already feels guilty in his heart. He, he knows what will be said and he'd rather avoid it. But there's no avoiding Elijah. He says, I have found you because you've sold yourself to doing evil. And Elijah brings God, God's message to, to Ahab. He, there's four parts to the message. It says, first of all, what you've done is evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, they may do this stuff in Phoenicia, but not amongst God's people. What you did is evil in the sight of the Lord. Can you imagine being said your, your actions were evil? Second, he says, the Lord will bring disaster upon you and your household. Um, and it specifically cites his male descendants. If you know anything about history, kings throughout all ages are always concerned about having that male descendant who will pass on, who become king after them. You know, Henry VIII was quite concerned about that in his day. So is every king. But Elijah is saying your male descendants will be cut off. In other words, your dynasty will come to an end. And then there's the way the Bible says it that I think is kind of funny. You don't see it here in this translation in the ESV. But when you look back at the original text, the King James brings it out. It, when it says male descendants, here's what it says in the King James. And, and the junior high part of me thinks this is funny. It says, and he will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. Now, before you complain about my language, I am quoting the King James Bible, so you can't criticize me for that. So, it, it, rather than using the literal word for male, it talks about those who pisseth against the wall, describing boys, not girls. So, all right, junior high, Mitch, you're done. Um, and then, so the third thing, he's, he cites examples of previous kings of Israel who, who faced the same judgment, who were also cut off. So Jeroboam um, was a previous king whose descendants were wiped out. Also Basha, the son of Ahijah. So it happened before, it can happen again. And then the last thing is he specifically cites Jezebel, who, who she will face a bad death, a bad end. The dogs will lick her blood. 
And so specifically because she was the one who engineered it, she would not get away with this either. Now, if you were Ahab, would that message get your attention? Keep in mind, Ahab saw Elijah call down fire on the mountain, right? Like he knows that Elijah could do what he says. This would get his attention. And it did. It got his attention and and led to something that's very surprising. It's so surprising, we get this this little parentheses in in verses 25 and 26. Because what's about to happen next is so surprising, it has to clarify. It has to remind you that Ahab is an evil king, right? Uh, It says, there was no one who did as much evil as Ahab. And and it goes back to what we talked about the previous six or seven sermons, where Ahab was leading Israel into Baal worship and, and all that. So it gives a side note, because what happens next is Ahab repents. Ahab hears the word of God spoken through Elijah and he responds. It cuts him to the heart. He repents. And not just like superficially. It says that he he goes about and he um, tears his robes and um, puts on sackcloth. In other words, he takes his royal robes in his official stat part as king tears them publicly and then puts on sackcloth as a sign that he's acknowledging that what he did was wrong and he shouldn't have done it was evil can you imagine a a a political leader ever now admitting he's he did did it wrong they don't do that none of them do nowadays they all just press on but but ahab did and And it was so surprising. God, in a sense, offers compassion, forgiveness. And and the word a new word comes to Elijah. And God says, It's like God himself is surprised, though he's not, of course. But he says, Have you seen what Elijah did? How he's humbled himself? It's like, wow, this is this is crazy. Um, he humbled himself before me. And so God says, I I will not bring disaster in his days. God does not cancel the judgment, but he mitigates it. And so um, he, he, he delays it so that it will fall not on Ahab, but on one of his sons. Now, don't worry. The, the son is not punished for Ahab's sin. He'll commit his own sins. But for Ahab... Instead of dying horribly, as was predicted, he will die in battle, which is a more honorable death for a king. Jezebel will still still end very badly um, with with being thrown off a wall and dogs licking up her blood. And that, that happens about seven or eight chapters later, if you feel like reading ahead in 2 Kings. It gets into the next book of the Bible. But what we take from this is God is more compassionate and gracious than we can imagine. He's not looking for reasons to shut people out. And if he sees a true sign of repentance, he is willing to bring forgiveness. He wants to show grace. 
It's like God, God has a soft spot for someone who has a humble heart, for someone who, who truly owns up to his false deeds. And Psalm 51, 17 says this. It says, the sacrifices that God is looking for is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. Jesus told a parable about a, a sinful man who went to the temple and could not even pray, could, did not even know how to pray because he, 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 he knew he had done wrong. And all he could say was, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home forgiven. Can I, can I encourage you to, to memorize a little prayer that's worthy of, of memorizing? It says, here's the prayer. It's, a, it's Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. Could you try to say that with me? Just so I want to put this in your head. Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. One more time. Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sometimes there's nothing else that we can pray. Know that God hears that prayer. He will not despise a, a contrite and humble heart. There's four truths that I see emerging from this passage that I want to kind of hit on. First of all is the deception of sin. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things. You see, our own heart can deceive us. If we just follow the passions, if we only pursue what we see and want, you know, the world tells us, follow our heart. God's word says something different. It says, beware of what your heart wants. Your heart can lead you astray. We can be self-deceived about our own sinfulness. We can easily see the sin in others, but we can miss it in our own life. Beware the deception of our heart, the deceptiveness of sin. The second truth is the reality of judgment. We will all, high and low, we will all have to give an account to God for our life's actions. It says in Hebrews 4, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees what we do, and God sees even why we do it. Even when we do something that outwardly looks good, but inwardly we're doing it for wrong motives. Thank you for catching my chair. When we give account, God will not say, well, it's okay because you followed your heart. He will call us to account for how we treated people, our just injustices and lies. He knows what we've done. And so that leads us to point number three, the necessity of repentance. Right? It says in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back. The essence of what the word repent means is 
turning back, turning the other direction. If you're heading in one way, it's, it's making a change in your life, making a change in your heart's attitude that flips the other way. It's not just feeling sorry or bad, not just feeling bad that you got caught doing something. It's owning up to what you did and that it was the wrong direction and you're ready now to head the other way. If you cheated on a test and you got an A and you repented, can you keep the A? Or do you have to go to your teacher and say, I cheated and take the F? Is it repentance? If you say, well, I'm sorry, God, I cheated, but man, it's great to get an A. Is that repentance? And so here comes the question. The text does not tell us. Did Ahab keep the vineyard? Or did he give it back to the, the descendants of Naboth in some way? Did he make restitution? I'm convinced he did, because I don't think his repentance would have been sincerely recognized by God if he'd, if he'd have said, well, too bad for Naboth, but this is a great vegetable garden. I'm convinced he, he would have given it back in some way um, to, to Naboth or in, in some way repented of it. Can you repent of your sin and still enjoy the fruits of it? The last thing, and this is vital that we hear, the amazing grace of God that leads us to forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9 declares this. It says, if you... If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, but he'll do more than just forgive our sins. He, he will um, work to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. See, see the Lord is both faithful in, in forgiveness, but he's also just. He will not just leave us in the state. That's why God sent Elijah to Ahab. So he would find not just forgiveness, but a new sense of righteousness as, as he would change his behavior. And so God does want to forgive us of our sins. And his grace is better than we can imagine. But he also will begin to work in our hearts and lead to cleanse us from that unrighteousness so that we can live lives for Jesus. I want to close with a kind of a Father's Day thought as I was meditating on this, this sermon, um, I specifically thought of, of men. And there's a verse in Malachi, a later prophet that talked to, says this, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That Elijah has some aspect of what he does that restores fathers to children. I, I'm just meditating. And as I thought about what happens here, and Elijah's challenge to Ahab to, to do what was right, and, and men and fathers, we are told that, that the most important thing we do is, is, is acquire things and give our, give our children a good, prosperous lifestyle to, to get more and more stuff in this world. And to, to give them the best of things and the best of trainings and, and all that. And, and, and just like Elijah, he, he wanted to acquire more property. And he thought, oh, this will be the, the heritage of my children. 
But instead, what I think the Word of God calls us to is, first of all, faithfulness to God. Men, the best thing you can give to your kids is to be faithful to God in worship and in life. That's a better heritage than, than land or property. And then the second aspect of this is integrity of life. To hold to what is true and what is right in all things. Society says, give your kids more stuff. God's word says, give them the heritage of integrity. To do what is right even when it's hard. And so fathers, hear that this morning. That that is God's call upon us. And as the worship team comes up, I want to pray a special prayer for the fathers this morning. That we could do that. That we could stay faithful in our walk with God. And that we can live lives of integrity in this world. Father, I want to pray specifically for the, the men and the fathers in this congregation. I pray that they would hear the call of your word. The call to, to be faithful in, in our 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 worship faithful in our lives, faithful to the God who, who made us and faithful to the, the Lord who redeemed us from our sins. None of us will be perfect. We will all fall short. But God, may we re not receive the grace when it's offered and may we take those opportunities to, to turn our life back to you when we've fallen short. May we receive that forgiveness and cleansing. And Father, may you enable us to live lives of integrity to know what is the right path when we come to it and have the strength to follow it. May we give our children the heritage of integrity in our lives. Lord, it's not easy. We live in a world that wants to corrupt us into its ways. Lord, give us strength and show us how. In Jesus' name, amen.